three, two, one. Welcome to Kentucky Caliber. My name is Jason Belcher, your host. I'm a military veteran, small business owner. Today we're going to be talking about the situation in Ukraine and the potential for the conflict in the eastern portion of that country to blow up from a localized conflict into something much larger, potentially even another world war involving NATO and Russia. This situation has received a lot of attention recently, but unfortunately, most of that attention has focused on what Russia or the United States might do in response to each other. There's been very little by way of context in this uh, current situation, so that's what we hope to answer today. The question we want to address is, how did the current situation in Ukraine come to be? How do we get to the situation that we're currently in? And our guest today is the perfect individual to help us try to find some answers to that question. Our guest today is Dr. Max Kovalov, who grew up in Ukraine and now is a professor of international studies at the College of Charleston here in the United States. And I'll let Dr. Kovalov introduce himself and tell us about what he does. So my name is Max Kovalov. I'm an instructor in international studies at the College of Charleston. I am actually a political scientist by training. I got my doctoral degree at the University of Oklahoma in 2013. Uh, I, I got interested in political science. I got to the U.S. in 2002 as a Muskie Fellow. Uh, it was a, a, an exchange program that was designed to bring students from former Soviet countries to the U.S. to expose them to, uh, to Western education. And so, so I came to Oklahoma State University. I got my master's in international studies. And then I, um, I went to, I, I got interested in political science. And I you know, decided to apply to a PhD program at the University of Oklahoma, and so I, I got my PhD from OU. Um, I am interested. My my research is on uh, on on democracy, democratization. I'm interested in democratic transitions, democratic erosion. Uh, I study populism. Uh, I also study collective memory. Uh, sort of these questions of what and how, what societies remember, what societies forget. Um, and uh, I also, I'm also interested in uh, political outsiders. My recent project is on political outsiders and populism. So at least two of those areas, uh, you mentioned, or three, I guess, democratization, transition, and, and collective memory. I think all three of those things very have a lot to say about the current situation in Ukraine, which is the topic of the, the podcast we're going to be doing today. And I, I think all three of those things have a lot to say about how the current situation came about. In, in the English-speaking world, uh, English-speaking news or, or media or, or just folks chatting about it, there's a lot of discussion about the, the, the Russian forces on the eastern border, uh, but there's almost never any context supplied to how the situation in Ukraine got to where it is. That's almost completely missing. And to my surprise, even professional analysts who write papers for think tanks and, and research articles have, have omitted that. When they, when they write papers or they publish, it's almost entirely focused on, you know, Russia does this, so the United States will do that. And they sort of get into this theoretical back and forth about what could happen, what might happen, what they think will happen. But Ukraine itself gets almost entirely missed. So it's almost like the U.S. and, and Russia are arguing over Ukraine without actually talking about Ukraine. And, and I just think that's kind of unusual. And I wondered if you could maybe fill us in on, uh, give us some more context on that since you, you grew up there and you're from the region, you know it really well. Absolutely. I, I actually think that it's not that unusual. In uh, 1938, when um, kind of the future of Europe was decided uh, at the Munich con uh, conference, uh, the major players who were present were the major countries were present. Uh, was the Nazi Germany was uh, was the, the Europeans, the, the British, and essentially the British wrote a blank check to Hitler uh, for invasion of Czechoslovakia. Well, guess who was not present at, at these negotiations? Czechoslovaks. Um, Czechoslovaks were not present at, at this critical decision that kind of opened the border, um, so they didn't have a say. And so it, it, this has been a common criticism uh, of Ukrainians uh, in the midst of all of these negotiations between the EU, between the US and EU and Russia. Uh, Ukrainians have been concerned that our voices, it's not that it's not heard, but uh, we're just not there. And so that's, that's one of the concerns. How Ukraine got here, uh, so uh, 
I, I wonder where do I start. Uh, the current crisis started in, I would probably put it uh, to 2013. Uh, Ukraine started making steps in the direction of a free trade agreement with the European Union. So in uh, sometime around 2009, 2010, the Ukrainian government started making steps uh, and started kind of applying uh, with the potential of, of, of submitting a future application to or an uh, association agreement. The association agreement with the European Union is a free trade agreement that uh, is usually considered sort of as a first step on the way, on the long way to full-fledged full membership in the European Union. Not every country that gets this association agreement actually becomes a member. Turkey is one of those examples. Turkey has been an association uh, associate member with the EU, I think, since 1987, and uh, the membership is not in sight. Uh, so you could, but for Ukraine, it was an important symbolic and an actual practical. Uh, agreement that was uh, that, that it wanted to sign with the EU uh, symbolically because Ukraine viewed itself as part of uh, this um, Western European world, part of uh, pan-European uh, continent, if you will, or idea. Uh, Ukrainians uh, have been viewing themselves as as Europeans. And uh, practically, Ukraine wanted to get access to the European market. Uh, the Europeans will get access to the Euro Ukrainian markets. Uh, and, and that's not necessarily, it, it wouldn't be a, a, a process on which the, both sides will get equal benefits. But then, you know, thinking about liberal distribution of uh, positive gains, everyone will be better off. Uh, Ukrainian businesses will get access uh, to the European market and vice versa. Uh, and so, and then Ukrainians also were hoping to get access to traveling. Uh, so they, they hope they hope that the visa regime with the European with the European Union would be uh, lifted, and so Ukrainians would be able to travel to the EU without visas. Uh, and visas was were, were, were difficult to get uh, at the time uh, by 2013, but then not impossible. But it was a hurdle, and it was a cost, um, and so. Uh, the Ukrainian government at that time, that was uh, the president was Viktor Yanukovych, uh, has been negotiated, negotiating this agreement. Last minute, it backed, backtracked and then said, uh, announced that we're not going to sign this agreement. And that triggered, uh, that policy decision of not signing the free trade agreement triggered major protests in uh, Ukraine. Long story short, uh, these protests it transitioned from policy decision to uh, an anti-repression and anti-centralization and, and, uh, anti of power uh, by the presidents, and uh, the presidents uh, fled the country. Uh, the protests turned violent. The president fled the country, and uh, and then Russia annexed a part of Ukraine's territory, uh, the, the peninsula, the Crimean Peninsula. And so this was kind of the beginning of the current crisis that we are experiencing, that we're watching observing uh, in, in front of our eyes today, that started with Ukrainian steps uh, towards the membership of uh, in this free trade agreement. Um, also, I want to make sure that, so, you know, where Ukraine, how Ukraine got here, uh, a question about NATO is over, uh, in, uh, in, invoked here or used here. Um, so we, we know the common narrative that is coming from Russia that well, we Russia is concerned for its security that Ukraine is about to join NATO. We want written guarantees from uh, from the West that Ukraine is not going to join NATO. Well, if anything, Ukraine actually, well, in 2008, Ukraine was trying to get the membership action plan, the so-called MAP. Uh, Ukraine was politely rejected. Ukraine was told, yes, you will join, but maybe sometime in the future, Ukraine and Georgia. Um, it was a polite decision or a polite kind of rejection, soft rejection. It was not an outright rejection, so Ukrainians were still optimistic. In 2010, when Viktor Yanukovych came to power, he actually signed an, into a law the bill that made Ukraine as a, a, an alliance-free country, a neutral state. Essentially, it was a decision 
uh, against this potential membership in NATO, in the military or political alliance. The window for some kind of economic alliance to uh, with the potential membership in the EU was left open. So that allowed Ukraine to apply for this association agreement. But if anything, if, if we're trying to understand how Ukraine got here and why is Russia demanding from the West that Ukraine not join NATO, it's important to keep in mind that Ukraine was not on the way to join NATO in 2013 or 2014 or later. If, uh, and then I, there is also public opinion in Ukraine that has been radically opposed to the membership in NATO. Only about 16 or 17 percent of Ukrainians actually were interested in NATO. That actually, the public opinion changed after the Russian annexation of Crimea in 2014. So the cause and effect here is not that Ukraine was going to join NATO, and that's, that, that's what triggered Russian aggression and Russian security concerns. Russia annexed a part of Ukraine's territory and has been supporting troops in the west, in the east of, of the country, and, uh, and, and that's what triggered more stronger support among Ukrainians towards NATO. Yeah, a couple of things you, you mentioned there, and I'll start with the, the most recent one. The annexation of territory is sort of a key issue, uh, and, and now that's flaring up again in the eastern part. And, and this sort of goes back to some older historical questions about what territory belongs to whom. And you, you've even heard in some Russian-speaking uh, news and sources that, that there actually is no independent Ukraine. There never was. And, and so that's, that's a point of opposition from the Russian perspective, or at least from the Russian state um, government perspective. And, and I just wondered um, how that how that type of view is, is perceived in, in Ukraine, or, or from, by yourself, uh, for that matter? Uh, well, there's, it's, I just say that this is a matter of uh, academic disagreements, I, uh, whether Ukraine has its history or doesn't, or independence history. Um, I, I think, uh, I, I mean, there is, there is no uh, disagreement that Ukraine does have history. The, the question is, how far do we go to seek for this uh, history of an independent Ukraine. I mean, we have uh, common roots that are starting uh, sometime in around 9, 9, 10th century with the founding of Kiev Rus. And so many Ukrainians, are, or most Ukrainians, are proud of these roots. Russians, Ukrainians, and Belarusians are actually claiming these similar roots uh, that we're all coming from the same uh, kind of origin, same source. Uh, and then I think what, what where we deviate is. Uh, Russians are arguing that it's it's about Russia that was uh, that started with this uh, principality started in Kiev and then it was transformed into this large entity of the Russian Empire, the USSR, and then now independent independent Russia. But it's uh, all sort of this grander grander idea, or bigger idea of a greater Russia. And so when we are talking about Ukraine or Belarus, those those are really borderlines of uh, a larger entity that is Russia. Uh, Ukrainians would not just, would not see history in, in the same way. There were several attempts uh, when Ukrainians were trying to declare independence. Uh, the, the most recent one before 91, it was uh, 1918. There was a, a short period of uh, independence uh, that Ukraine lived uh, under in, uh, for about a year or so. Uh, and then for, for about 300 years, since 1654, Ukraine has been um, in, in a uh, partnership with Russia. So uh, we refer to this uh, agreement as an agreement that was the, that created this friendship between Russia and Ukraine. In the sense, and and, and uh, many Ukrainian scholars actually view this relationship between Russia and Ukraine that, that started in 1658 as a relationship of imperialism or, or colonialism. Uh, Ukraine was uh, sort of at, at first initially viewed as an auton autonomous uh, area, and then its uh, its autonomous status uh, was sh was shrinking over the year, was shrunk over over the centuries, and then in uh, different different leaders or different rulers of Russia uh, were trying to, you know, to put a stop on any kind of independent sources of Ukrainian autonomy. And so there were, there were uh, instances when Ukrainians were trying to uh, gain 
war autonomy and uh, Ukrainian peasants were trying to do that in the 1930s. They were resisting uh, Soviet policies, and uh, and we know that you know Stalin policies actually put a hold or put a stop on these uh, uh, on these attempts uh, to resist. And so it was essentially an attempt to uh, to break to break the spine of Ukrainian nation, Ukrainian independence movements. So when we are talking about these early attempts uh, of or early relationship between Russia and Ukraine, um, we we view these relationships uh, from different perspectives. Um, Russia views this as you know we are one people, we are we have common roots. Uh, Ukrainians view this as a uh, as a as a relationship of dependence. Uh, and uh, imperialism that was just recently lifted in 1991. Uh, yeah. No, and I was just going to say you mentioned the Stalin period, uh, and so there's a lot of violence that occurred during that period, and I think that's left a lasting impression in the memory of people who live both in Ukraine and Russia, and and the memories of those still influence the thoughts, actions, and decisions of people who live in the region today. Would you would you think that's a fair assessment? Absolutely. So there, there were there were a couple of things that were going on uh, under or during these thirty years, uh, the thirty year period of Stalin's rule. One was the actual repressions that were directed against uh, the so called enemies of the state, and uh, some of them were political leaders and people who were not particularly uh, were who were who were challenging or could could be challenging uh, the authority of the central the centralized power that was created by Stalin. Uh, but then there was uh, there was a, another aspect to this, and so the enemy of the people that the, this image that was created in in the Soviet narrative, uh, the the enemy of the people became a Ukrainian peasant, a Ukrainian farmer, who was farming his land, uh, who was working hard, occasionally would hire additional hands to help with harvest, and uh, and this farmer would resist uh, any kind of collectivization efforts. In 1929, the Soviet Union started uh, the policy of collectivization. All property that belonged to farmers, independent farmers, peasants, was uh, expropriated by the state, was taken over by the state, collective farms were created, and uh, farmers were essentially left, were left with nothing, but then they were forced to join collective farms. So they had to give up livestock, they had to uh, give up equipment, um, and my, the family of my, uh, my, the story of my family, the history of my family is actually part of this, uh, of this uh, history. My grandfather on my dad's side, uh, or my great grandfather on my dad's side, was one of those uh, entrepreneurial farmers who uh, he had a large family. He had my grandfather liked to say that there were nine souls in, in his family, um, so there were nine people. Uh, he had seven uh, or six uh, brothers and sisters. He was the seventh, and, and his parents. And so it was a large family. Everyone was working. Everyone uh, they were working on land. They were uh, planting. They were harvesting. They were growing apples, uh, gardens of apples. And uh, and then comes comes this policy of collectivization. Uh, peasants who were resisting this uh, policy, they were either executed right on the spot or they were sent to Siberia. And so my great-grandfather, knowing about these Troika commissions that were walking from region to region, from village to village, he actually built a tree, in the, a pear tree in the, on, on top of the pear or somewhere in the middle of the pear in his backyard. He lived there of course, for quite a while until, uh, until these Troika committee, uh, commissions were gone. Otherwise, he would have been sent uh, exiled to Siberia or executed. My grandfather and uh, his sister and his mom were actually sent to, to Siberia as children of the enemy of the state. And so this is this what this is just an, a story of one family, but there were millions of these families, uh, these uh, families that were whose property who lost property, who lost land, uh, who lost uh, everything. They were even, and some of them lost their lives. And, uh, and and that what was happening before the famine, the states created famine that eradicated, by different estimates, between three and seven seven million people, between three and seven million Ukrainian farmers. So between the policy of collectivization and the the Holodomor, the uh, states produced famine, Ukraine basically lost its um, 
it's uh, it's uh, uh, agricultural capacity and its uh, ability to produce and to sow grain and then to um, uh, to thrive. And so, so uh, a major stumbling block on the way to development. And, and you know, so I, I would where I was going with that was so I would say all of those act, all of those things that happened left a, a collective memory, an impression that still guides folks today. So you could understand why on the Ukrainian side there's a lot of uh, mistrust, suspicion, if not outright hostility. Uh, to, to Russian actions, whether it's in eastern Ukraine or just in general? I think it, you're, you're actually making a very good point, and it's, it's, and it's a, an important point that the hostility that exists among Ukrainians today, it's directed towards Russian actions rather than towards uh, the Russian people uh, or, or uh, the idea or, or the Russian world. Uh, it's, a, it's a narrative that's a, over the last decade or so since 2013 you know we ukraine has been engaged in in, in war in a, in a hybrid war the war is not only happening in the east eastern part of the country but it's also the, the narrative war um russia has been created created creating this narrative that um, uh, ukraine all ukrainians are nationalists ukrainians are neo-fascists and uh, their goal is to destroy everything that is sacred our traditions and they are there to destroy our language. They uh, they want to uh, they want to execute all ethnic Russians. Uh, and and so this was the narrative that was prevalent in 2013-2014. And under this pretext, Russia took its troops to Crimea to protect ethnic Russians. Well, I am ethnic Russian and an ethnic Russian, and there is about 30% of uh, ethnic Russians like me, uh, or were it like me in Ukraine. Um, well, no one really was squeezing uh, people's rights to speak the Russian language. No one was uh, was persecuting people for uh, for language skills. And so, what happened since then? Uh, more and more Ukrainians have been speaking the Ukrainian language. More and more Ukrainians were uh, they started wearing traditional national clothing. So they were celebrating these aspects of Ukrainian as Ukrainian identity that were kind of on a in the background before, uh, but the, the aggression of the Russian state, the specific policies, uh, the annexation of the territory, the support for separatist forces in the east, those things triggered the reaction against Russian policies and Russian actions and Russian leadership rather than the Russian people. Ukrainians still have a lot of family-related families uh, that, that live in Russia, uh, who uh, and then there's a lot of Russians whose family live in Ukraine. This animosity uh, that is constructed by the Kremlin that supposedly exists between Russians and Ukrainians, specifically among Ukrainians towards Russians, it, it, it's not there. The animosity exists against Russian policies and Russian actions. Um, and but many Ukrainians, most Ukrainians, understand that uh, Russia is not. An independent state with independent media. Uh, so Ukrainians understand that uh, Russians live in um, state-controlled under state-controlled domination, where power centralized, the media centralized, and uh, and so when you hear the same story over and over, you internalize it as your own, and then you start believing it. And, and so this is the kind of environment that I believe that uh, a lot of Russian citizens have been living under over the last two decades. And, and I think that's an important point you make about how the current situation in Ukraine got to where it is, because those facts and the, the, the explanation that you've just given shoots a, a, a lot of uh, holes in the claims that it's actually all being done by agents in the West or agent provocateurs, provocateurs or, or what have you uh, that, are, that are causing this, which would, clearly I don't think that's the case. Um, and, and you just provided some pretty good and compelling uh, evidence and explanations for why that's not, not true. Um, I wanted to go back briefly to something that you said initially when you were talking about the, the former president of Ukraine and, and, and the response to um, the, the, the protests that broke out. You, you mentioned anti-repression and anti-centralization uh, in Ukraine. I wonder if you could unpack that a little bit uh, and maybe explain in more detail kind of what you meant by that, because I think it, it's an important point. Sure. So uh, uh, I, I want to make a quick pit stop in 2004 because I think uh, to understand 
why Ukrainians were 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 took to the streets in 2013. Uh, there was there was another so-called revolution or a, an attempt to change the government or to challenge the central government that happened in 2004. And that was the so-called Orange Revolution that uh, essentially brought uh, uh, to uh, brought people to the streets who protested against the falsified election. In 2004, Viktor Yanukovych was uh, contesting an election, presidential election, with Viktor Yushchenko. Uh, Yanukovych was a pro-Russian candidate, Yushchenko was a pro-Western candidate uh, with uh, aspirations towards more integration in, in, to, with Europe. And, um, and the election was falsified. Uh, Yanukovych at that time was prime minister. And, um, and then uh, the, under the pressure from protesters, the, uh, this uh, second round of the runoff was uh, pushed into the third round, so there was another round of uh, elections, and uh, Ukrainians actually elected Viktor Yushchenko. Um, and between 2005 and 2010, Yanukovych kind of went into into nowhere. He disappeared, uh, but then he reappeared sometime in a few uh, in, 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 a, in a, about a year or two years after 2005, with with the help of no none no one else but Paul Manafort. Who was the advisor of uh, uh, at that time Prime Minister Viktor Yanukovych? He was in charge of his presidential campaign for 2010. So he kind of re-imaged, recreated uh, his image in uh, by 2010. Uh, but then, what happened between 2005 and 2010 in Ukraine? Uh, there were there was an election in 2007, 2006, and then 2009-10 presidential election. These elections were actually free and fair. Um, so there was no coercion, there was no falsification. Those were probably the cleanest elections in Ukrainian, in Ukrainian history. The 2010 presidential election brought to power Viktor Yanukovych, and then there was a 2012 election. There was a parliamentary election, which essentially was also falsified. So there were a number of techniques that were used by the, uh, by the then uh, President Yanukovych and his party of regions to buy support, to clone candidates with similar names. Uh, I use, uh, I, I, I have one of my research projects, one of these different techniques that were used by the ruling party to win the election in a, in a, in a not, not an obvious way. So a lot of falsifications that, were, that happened, they were actually happening before or after the election day, not actually on the election day. Uh, and so, essentially, that election allowed uh, Yanukovych to centralize power uh, and uh, so, so to centralize legislative power. He already had presidential power, and then he also centralized uh, the judicial power. So, uh, essentially, Ukraine lost its opportunity to work with, uh, you know, with through checks and balances. The presidential power was not checked by uh, other institutions of horizontal accountability, the legislature or the judicial system. But that, yet, that was not the primary cause for protest in 2013. Ukrainians came to the streets because they protested against the particular policy decision of Yanukovych not willing to sign the association agreement with the EU. In a very short time period between November and December, protesters, uh, protesters were, uh, were, were roughed up by the police, by the riot police. And, uh, and that created another wave of protests. Uh, so people started coming to the streets. The, 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 the reasons, the causes already changed. And so the, 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 the way, the second and third wave of protesters were coming to protest against the repressive nature of the Yanukovych government. And it, and it seems like uh, uh, the Yanukovych government was making steps a little too late, a little too uh, too little, uh, because if usually when these kinds of things are happening, authoritarian leader or semi or competitive authoritarian leader, what they do, they sometimes sacrifice um, a, a chief of police or a chief of an interior minister. Yanukovych was actually holding on to all of his um, uh, people who were uh, on his entourage on, because they were loyal to him, and then he was loyal, and he wanted to keep them close. And and I, I feel like the, the, if, if if he was not holding on to on to these people, uh, he could have been still president in 2015 and 2017. Um, and so this the story here is that 
Ukrainians have uh, made these several attempts to deal to to, uh, to challenge the the president or the candidate or candidates who were trying to centralize political power. Uh, and uh, when Ukrainians were challenging uh, its central governments through the Orange Revolution in 20, 2004 or the Revolution of Dignity in 2013, these kinds of events were very visible for Russia. And for Russia, Russia has been, Russia and the Russian President Vladimir Putin has been uh, carefully watching everything that was developing in 2004. His candidate did not win the election. Uh, in 2003, another president who was uh, a supporter or uh, who was an authoritarian, a semi-authoritarian leader of Georgia, uh, he also lost his seat. Uh, so he was watching all of these uh, uh, upheavals developing in his neighborhood, and so to him, uh, there there is this one of the explanations of, uh, of this whole debacle is uh, it's a domestic explanation. Revolutions are dangerous, and democracy is a dangerous form of government for Russia uh, because it's going to it, it would it would it was undermine the power of the authoritarian ruling elite. Russia is an authoritarian state today. It was making steps towards democracy in early 1990s, but it really started sliding towards uh, a more authoritarian form of governments after 2005, 2006. And so any kind of expressions of um, uh, attempts to establish uh, transparent institutions and transparent elections in the neighborhood are potentially a threat to the Russian system of government. Because uh, if Ukrainians can do this, if Ukrainians are successful at bringing a, a transparent government, if Belarusians are successful at challenging the power of an autocrat who was in power since 94, then um, what, would, what could stop Russians from doing the same, from challenging their own government? Especially if you are subscribing to the Kremlin's narrative that uh, we are the same people. And, and that is... Yeah, and that's precisely why I wanted to return to that point because I suspected it would lead to, to that very uh, that very type of assessment. Uh, so you begin to see, of course, there's economic interests in, at play. Uh, you know, the gas goes through Ukraine to Europe. Uh, of course, the EU wants access to the Ukrainian market. It's you know 45 million people. That's that's a pretty big market. Uh, of course, to Russia, it's in its west where previous invasions have come through, and so I can understand there might be concern about uh, security uh, interests being threatened there. But I think what you just said is the actual is the actual concern that's driving, uh, at, at least uh, from the Russian perspective and policymaking perspective, what's really going on. Why are they so concerned about Ukraine? Well, for the reasons that you just said, if, if it can happen right on your doorstep, uh, what's to stop that from happening uh, in, in your own neighborhood? And I, and I think there's probably a lot of truth to that. There is, it's, it's one of the alternative explanations. I really like to think about, I mean, it's not, it's not a very satisfying answer when you're asking. So when you're, when you're trying to understand, so what's really driving uh, Russian foreign policy here? And, uh, and we, we all try to understand what's driving Vladimir Putin. We, we try to understand what's driving Russia's foreign policy. So this domestic explanation, the, the focus on democracy and the nature of the authoritarian or competitive authoritarian government in Russia uh, is one of these alternative explanations. And of course, there, there are people who subscribe to the security explanation, that it's it's about uh, it's bl about blaming the West, it's about uh, security guarantees that's, um, uh, that Ru Russia is concerned about. Yeah, you know, the security area is one I've studied a lot, and, and I've seen this in many other places, not just uh, in, in Ukraine, but uh, in the Arab Spring across the Middle East and the Levant, you see a very similar pattern where protests break out and the heavy-handed security response to those protests become takes on a life of its own. You know, whereas the initial protests had an objective, whatever it was, subsequent protests are more focused on the way the first protests were handled by the state. And so the harsh security crackdown is like pouring fuel on the fire. And so I, I don't think sometimes that states that are involved in that behavior understand that. And so when they, when they undertake a, a harsh security crackdown thinking that this is going to solve it, We'll just scare people, we'll intimidate them, or we'll use sufficient force and that'll snuff out the protest. It ends up doing the exact opposite. And they're kind of baffled by that. They can't, so that's, I think that sort of gives them a, an opening to start making claims about foreign interference or foreign powers, when really it's the action of the state 
uh, that's driving the resistance, and it just intensifies the protests. Absolutely, uh, you, you would uh, you would think that authoritarian. We, we we know that protesters learn from one country to another. They learn from each other, and so that they adopt certain techniques or frame uh, frames uh, how they organize protests, uh, but. Autocrats also learn, and you would think that uh, autocrats would learn that one, well, if there is a challenge, so first of all, I can I can prevent some kind of challenge from happening. Um, I can I can create a more repressive state. I can I can create a political system with uh, where one party is controlling the parliament, it's passing laws, and so I can create a security apparatus. This is what what. Uh, uh, Political scientists are referring to state capacity. If my state capacity is strong, uh, then uh, the challenge to my rule is going to be less likely. If there is a challenge, then uh, well, there are options. There are other options that are kind of win windows of opportunity are opening for protesters. But then you're right that uh, the repression, the heavy repression of protesters, uh, has uh, an important role on kind of stimulating more protests. Although I think that in the case with uh, Russia, I, I think the way how uh, the Russian state has been handling protesters and has how uh, the security forces were encouraging Yanukovych to handle protesters in 2013, 2014, that was an attempt to actually be as harsh as possible. Yanukovych was emulating a lot of things that uh, uh, they, uh, uh, that were done by were by. Uh, in Russia, the, the laws that were passed in Russia, in Russia were passed in Ukraine in 2014, early January. Uh, security were brutal, security were brought from other parts of the country where people uh, are, you know, they don't have relatives, so they don't, and they're not going to have any kind of personal conflict. Um, so people were, were security, riot police were brought from eastern parts of Ukraine. Um, and so it seems like, uh, but, but Autocrats have to walk this fine line. You know, how do I stop the protest without triggering more of it? And also, I was going to point out that the perception from Russia that if a democracy can take hold in Ukraine and lead to revolution, it could happen here. The reverse of that is probably also true for folks in Ukraine. If, if a more stronger authoritarian state is taking hold in Russia and grabbing pieces of our country as we go, then, you know, it's only a matter of time until we're going to find ourselves under, under either that regime directly or, or one of its proxies. Absolutely. So it's uh, you know, for 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 the Kremlin, it's important to des describe and, uh, and and frame these protests uh, and and as as uh, instances of disorder and instability. And uh, if you know, and we should show the the state as the only actor who can provide stability and bring stability and order. Um, well, I think in the Ukrainian instance, the Ukrainians are are. Trying to to seek more of a more more freedoms rather than stability and order, uh, or at least that that was the that, that, those were the themes in 2013 2014. I, I was I'm in my office here. Sorry, someone was knocking at the door. There, I have to give them a, a talk in just a second. But I, I was going to say I, I think that's all very true. And um, the, the the final part I wanted to get to was where 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 do we go from here? Um, mm -hmm. You know, how do we? There, there's been a lot of instability in Ukraine and insecurity. And, and, and so we've, we've heard all of this, and I think it's a good assessment. I really appreciate the, the insights that you provided. But for, for policymakers both here in the, in the United States or in, there in Europe and Ukraine and in Russia, wh what happens now? I mean, how do we, wh where do we go from there? Again, uh, it's difficult to give this, uh, you know, political scientists are great at uh, trying to understand and explain what has happened. Uh, we are, we're terrible at predictions. Uh, not a lot of people were expecting the Soviet Union collapse, to collapse in uh, 91, or uh, the Berlin Wall to fall in 1989. Uh, so we, we can, at least we can project where we can anticipate, based on what we are seeing today, uh, we, we can anticipate, I, I would think about these alternative scenarios, so how we're, I, I'm thinking about alternative explanations of, uh, of the conflict, so can we think about alternative scenarios? And so one of the scenarios that uh, has, let, let's say, if we, you know, if we subscribe to this narrative that it's about NATO and it's about NATO expansion and uh, it's about security guarantees that need to, uh, need to be given to Russia that Ukraine is not going to join uh, the NATO alliance. Uh, well, that's kind of a, 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 
a hint to NATO, then NATO has to do something. NATO has to make policy that Ukraine is going to be a, a buffer state. Well, Ukraine was a buffer state between 2010 and 2014, uh, before Vladimir Putin triggered this whole development. Um, and so, if, if that's the case, basically the, the West has to give, to give in and uh, has to provide these uh, tangible or intangible guarantees to Russia. Uh, and uh, and if, if the West does that, then that would essentially reincorporate Ukraine into this Russian sphere of influence that uh, we know existed during the Cold War. Uh, Ukraine was a part of the USSR, but other countries were in the sphere of influence. That's really not what Ukrainians are interested in. Um, the West could, uh, if we if we think about uh, that democracy is a problem, that uh, the the cause of, the, of this whole thing is democracy and the, the nature of the repressive regime in Russia, then the answer, the, where we go from here, is uh, domestic reforms in Russia. And this is something that uh, Vladimir Putin and uh, the Kremlin has, have been very vehemently arguing against that it's the West who is trying to impose a system that is alien for us uh, and so they're, they're trying to take over, they're trying to uh, undermine our government, they're trying to take it down. Uh, and so to respond to this kind of comment is, uh, it's, it's not that the West that should be playing a, a strong role, it's not that the West that should bring democratic institutions. Uh, there are domestic actors that exist in Russia that are opposition actors, there are non-governmental organizations. Uh, their work has been very severely compromised over the last decade. Uh, one opposition leader, Boris Nemtsov, was assassinated in 2015. Another opposition leader, Alexei Navalny, is in prison, was poisoned in prison right now. Uh, laws have been passed against non-governmental organizations' uh, activities, uh, and, and so this, uh, the, the domestic efforts uh, in Russia is very restricted right now. But what the West could do, the West could actually support these human rights organizations and uh, non-governmental organizations who are trying to raise these important questions uh, and with, without being accused that, oh, you're trying to change the regime here. So it's, but then that, that also implies that it has to be a fine line. Where do you draw the line between regime change uh, and in instigating the co another color revolution in Russia versus as when, when you're supporting domestic groups? Um, and to be fair, there's probably some room for uh, for domestic reforms within Ukraine itself. Th those are some of the reasons why the European Union has been reluctant to, to enter into a full partnership. Uh, is due to, the, to some of the internal processes of government within Ukraine itself. So I think it would be fair to say that there, there's some room for improvement there too. Would, would you agree with that? I, I do agree with that. Ukraine is uh, is, a, is a flawed democracy. It's not. It's a it's a it's a functioning democracy, but it's, it has its problems. Uh, and and right now the problem there's a lot of problems with um, with domestic infighting, even though this is not. You know, the vote is free and fair, so that's that, that's something that we uh, that the Ukrainians are proud of. Uh, so the elections are free and fair; they're regular, and there is competition for power. Uh, exhibit A was the 2019 election when the incumbent lost, um, or one, one it lost a clear election. He conceded to the to the lost to the loss, and then um, but then what's happening right now? The incumbent now is being prosecuted. He is being tried. He is being prosecuted for treason. Petro Poroshenko was accused of treason, and and to me, the, the kind of charges that were used against him, uh, he is accused of treason because he was uh, expediting the export of or the, the purchases of coal from eastern part of the country. That was and, and that's, so the Ukrainian government was purchasing coal from the east, uh, from breakaway uh, regions of Donbas, and uh, the separatist areas. The money that was flowing from the national, from the central government to these areas was essentially uh, funding separatist activities. So that's how the Ukrainian prosecutors are describing the case against Poroshenko. To me, it's, it sounds similar uh, to the charges that were. Uh, issued against Yulia Tymoshenko in 2009 when she was sentenced to seven years in prison. 
Um, so essentially, what's, uh, what what Ukraine has right now? I mean, Ukraine has a lot of a lot of work to do. It, Ukraine is not near uh, any meeting any kind of criteria uh, to join the European Union. Um, Ukraine is a free state than Russia, uh, but it's it's not uh, it's not on par with its uh, with its partners, uh, even Romania and Bulgaria. Yeah. So, I mean, and, and those those things are all being done while there's while there's an ongoing, as you described earlier, essentially on and off hybrid warfare or active warfare in the east. And then there's there's the protests and the repercussions for that uh, in the west. And so it's it's a it is a dangerous situation. I, I think that perhaps the, the initial assessment of the U.S. government was premature that there was an imminent invasion. I can't predict what will happen in the future, but it, it now looks like they're walking back some of those statements. And so my hope is, as we as this goes forward, that, we'll, that, that the major political powers in Europe and, and the United States and Russia won't just forget about uh, Ukraine itself and the conditions there. And I really appreciate you taking the time to explain what some of those conditions are and, and how things got to where they are today. I think that's very helpful. And I think that's been missing from the, the public discourse on this topic here in the United States and from what I've seen, at least in the French speaking news in Europe as well. Uh, yes, uh, thanks for giving me this opportunity to share my thoughts. Uh, as far as uh, the overreaction, I actually completely agree about the overreaction, or, or I, I've been thinking about uh, the, the overreaction from the US and from the EU about this, about the imminence of invasion. And, uh, and, and I was thinking, so I started looking at uh, prior military exercises that were run by Russia. This is not the first time that Russia has been accumulating troops on the border with Ukraine. Russia has done that multiple times over the years uh, with, uh, with exercise, military exercises, military drills that were scheduled. Some of them were not scheduled, but uh, Russia had unscheduled military drills in February 2014 with about 100,000 troops on the border. And then there were uh, military exercises uh, Vostok, uh, East, Zapad, West, Caucasus, uh, in, in between 2015 and 2017, there were three or four major military exercises that, that Russia participated or jointly participated in with other countries or executed by itself. Every time, Russia has been accumulated by different estimates, uh, slightly either slightly under 100,000 uh, people or slightly over 100,000 people on the border. And every time the organization of economic or, or the organization of security of cooperation in Europe, OSCE, uh, was asking Russia how many troops you have on the border. And Russia always claimed under 13,000. Under 13,000, because that's an agreement, the, the so-called Vienna Agreement, according to which uh, any country that is organizing military exercises is supposed to declare if they have more than 13,000 troops on the border. And so Russia was uh, uh, trying to avoid this transparency and try to uh, un underreport uh, the number of troops, um, essentially to avoid uh, OSCE observers to be sent to Russia. But then this is not the first time that Russia has been accumulating troops, and, um, and it just seems like the, the only difference right now is that Russia issued very specific demands uh, about security and NATO and Ukraine. Yeah, and I wanted to point out the, the 100,000 figure from the U.S. point is an estimate, and it's an intelligence estimate based on analysis of satellite imagery and other things, and, and sometimes estimates are wrong. Um, I, I would, it would be hard to believe that they're that wrong, uh, that, they, that it's you know, by order of magnitude of 10 to go from you know, almost you know, 13,000 up to 100, but I just wanted to make sure we we're clear that that's an estimate. So the actual number is not really a certain thing right now, but I would say based on the data, it's certainly more than 13,000. And I don't think Russia has really tried too hard to deny that uh, either. So, I mean, there's a lot of uncertainties and a lot of variables at play, and it's, it's just we have to be careful about, about assigning any of those variables a concrete data point when it might not actually be one um, as we go forward with this. I, I hope there's, there's, that we find a way to diffuse the situation in the short term to restore some semblance of security uh, to the eastern regions of Ukraine. And I think that would help overall with stability for the country uh, as a whole. And, and I hope that's where we're going to go. I, I don't know what's going to happen in the future, but we'll, we'll certainly keep a close eye on this 
Um, and, and we could even continue this if you want to do uh, further discussions on this in the future. Now, there, you could probably give a series of lectures just on the topics uh, by yourself. So I, I know it's tough to fit it all into a 60-minute time frame. Yeah, absolutely. I'll, I'll be happy to join you again. And um, uh, there, there are a lot of these challenges that have to do with uh, Russia and Russia and U.S. relationships, uh, Russia-NATO relationships. There's a lot of challenges that exist within Ukraine, and they have to do with Ukrainians themselves and, and its relationship with uh, its breakaway regions. Okay. Well, hey, thanks a lot. I hope you have a great afternoon. I appreciate you uh, joining me here. And uh, thanks a lot. It's good to see you again. I know we, I haven't mentioned this early in the program. We, we had classes together at OU way, way back in the early 2000s. Uh, so it's, it's good to catch up with you. I, it, was, it was good talking to you, Jason. I enjoyed uh, good questions and uh, uh, good luck to you. And again, I'd like to thank Dr. Kovalov for taking the time to provide us with uh, valuable information and share his insights. The situation in Ukraine is a complicated one. And for most of us, as we go through our daily lives, and we encounter either sights or sounds in the form of usually video content from Ukraine or places like Ukraine, we often don't realize that what we see and hear represents only a small fraction of what's actually going on in those locations. So to say that it just scratches the surface or it's just the tip of the iceberg is absolutely correct. And it's in our interest to educate ourselves and try to understand more in more depth what we're dealing with because our government's going to make decisions that impacts not only our lives, but also the lives of people abroad. And it's a mistake, and it's a, it's a false assumption to believe that just because our government has enormous resources, which they do, and they have a lot of knowledgeable people working for them, and that's also true, but that doesn't always add up to a knowledge-driven decision. Sometimes it adds up to a political decision or an interest-driven decision that doesn't reflect the underlying realities that are going on on the ground and Ukraine is a good example of that and so as we go forward you know only in the last 50 minutes we can only begin to take a, a closer look into the internal dynamics that are playing out in, in, a, in a large and complicated nation like Ukraine and so I would just encourage everyone to read and educate yourself and gain better information so that we can understand what's going on and help shape the, uh, the policy making that's going to take place because decisions are going to be made in the future that will have far-reaching repercussions. And whether Russia removes its troops from the borders or doesn't, that by itself uh, is not going to determine what happens to the future uh, of Ukraine. And so I would just, just again encourage folks to, uh, to educate themselves and to learn. And I hope today we've helped uh, provide a little bit of uh, education and information to help understand, to help increase the depth of understanding about what's going on in Ukraine. And I think a dose of Albert Einstein is helpful here who said problems cannot be solved at the same level of awareness that created them. That is why it's important for us to study and to think more deeply about situations like Ukraine because we cannot expect to find solutions. We cannot expect to have more peace, better stability, and better security if we are unable to rise above the level of thinking that caused the insecurity and instability in the first place. So thanks for listening, and I hope everyone has a great day.